Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of Gone But Never Forgotten, Tina Fontaine. As I got to researching and writing this episode, right off the hop, I knew that this was going to be a longer one. This episode signifies more than one life, and in my opinion, it required me to do a deep dive into a lot of things, including the residential school program within Canada. Now, I will be the first to admit that I haven't ever done a deep dive into that topic, and I still definitely don't consider myself to be an expert, but I feel that a quick explanation of that is important to the story that we are going to tell today. The residential school system was in Canada, a network of boarding schools for Indigenous people, and was funded by the Canadian government's Department of Indian Affairs and was administered by Christian churches. This school system was created for the sole purpose of removing Indigenous children from the influences and cultures of their own people so that they could be assimilated to the dominant Canadian culture and to essentially kill the Indian within the child. The system took place for over 100 years and roughly 28% of Indigenous children were placed into the program, about 150,000. And the number of school-related deaths is unfortunately unknown because proper historical records were not kept. However, it is estimated to have been between 3,200 and 6,000 children. This residential school program caused great damage to the children by removing them from their family, removing them from their culture, and removing them from their language, and instead exposing them to physical and sexual abuse. Children would leave the school system after graduating and find themselves unable to return to their family and community because they did not know the culture or the language, and they would instead face racism and hatred from mainstream Canadian society. The program has been tied to the prevalence of alcoholism, substance abuse, post-traumatic stress, and suicide amongst people who were forced into it. Tina Michelle Fontaine was born on January 1st, 1999 to her parents, Valentina Duck and Eugene Fontaine. She was Valentina's second child. Valentina would have a third child in June of 2000. Eugene was a member of the Sag King First Nation. His father was a survivor of the residential schools program and unfortunately due at least in part to his experiences as a child that he suffered from alcoholism and was prone to violence. At the age of 12, Eugene would leave Sag King, move to Winnipeg, and fend for himself on the streets. Unfortunately, while living on the streets, Eugene also started to struggle with an alcohol addiction. Valentina was raised within the Bloodvein First Nation until the age of six. At the age of six, concerns began to arise that brought Valentina's family under scrutiny by Child and Family Services. Valentina's mother was prone to relationships that would bring violence and addiction into the home, which often would leave Valentina without proper care. Valentina would be taken away from and given back to her mother many different times. At the age of 10, Tina would become a permanent ward of CFS. While in CFS's care, files state that Valentina started to struggle with alcohol and drugs and that CFS workers knew that she had started being exploited sexually from a very young age. Unfortunately though, very little was done to intervene for Valentina. In 1994, Valentina would meet Eugene for the very first time. At the time, Valentina was a 12-year-old girl in care, and Eugene was a 23-year-old adult. 
CFS documentation does show that they were aware of the relationship and also aware that the relationship was sexual. CFS was also aware that Valentina would run away from her foster placements to be with Eugene, who willingly harbored her. Not too long after they first met, Valentina moved in with Eugene and, in documentation, referred to him as someone who would take care of her as she had no one in her life to play this role. Valentina also confirmed to her CFS guardian in 1994 that she was being sexually exploited by adults in the community and that she was using that money to buy alcohol. She also made them aware that she felt depressed, suicidal, isolated, alone, and unloved. In spring of 1996, Valentina gave birth to her first child. Eugene was listed on documentation as the father of the child and the child was apprehended by, at birth by CFS for safety and protection reasons. The sexual exploitation of Valentina and drug use would sadly continue and violence between Eugene and Valentina would escalate. As mentioned, Tina was born on January 1st, 1999, when Valentina was 17 years old and still a ward to CFS. Eugene was 28 years old. Prior to Tina's birth, her parents started working hard to better themselves. They were attending prenatal classes and also attended classes to help them with addiction. After her birth, the hospital noted that the family caused little concern because of the work they were doing to better themselves, and they released Tina to her parents. In June of 1999, Valentina was discharged by CFS as she turned 18 years of age. However, a file was opened on Tina with CFS, and observation would continue. The first three years of Tina's life were tumultuous to say the least. There was constant observation by CFS, and Tina and her sibling were removed quite a few times from the care of their parents, and in November of 2001, Tina and her sibling were placed in the care of their father after their parents split up. It is concerning to note that very little research and casework seems to have been done before the children were placed in the care of Eugene, who we will remind you was technically pedophilic with Valentina when she was still considered to be a child. CFS seemed to have seen that Eugene took parenting and addiction courses and was fit to parent without too much of a deep dive. Between 2002 and 2004, Tina, who was aged 3 to 5 during that time, her younger sibling, and her father moved back and forth between Sag King First Nation and Winnipeg. Eugene was legitimately trying here, and a family friend shared in an interview in 2019 that Eugene was trying everything that he could with his limited resources during this period to try and ensure the best possible life for Tina and her sibling. In October of 2004, however, Eugene would again wind up on the CFS radar as they became aware of his worsening addiction to alcohol. Eugene was also diagnosed with and undergoing treatment for cancer. This, of course, would be another pressure on the young life of Tina. In November of 2004, Eugene would make the decision to put both children in the care of their paternal great-aunt, Thelma Favell, and her husband, Joseph Favell, through a private guardianship agreement. Over the next year or so, Tina's great-grand-aunt would wind up being in conversation with CFS multiple times. 
the two main reasons being that Eugene would show up to gain access to the children while he was worse for wear, often drunk, and at times beaten up from altercations. In January of 2005, Tina's grand-aunt expressed concerns that Tina may in fact be suffering from fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, but unfortunately the system would fail Tina in this regard, and she would never receive the assessment that was needed. Tina's report card at the end of grade two stated that Tina was a quiet girl and that she may struggle in the language arts area if she doesn't practice her reading skills more. However, she has good work habits. Her math skills are fair. Tina will need to make a big effort to listen to instructions and she should do well. Tina would then be placed to repeat the third grade. However, there didn't seem to be any efforts, programs, or assistance granted to Tina to try and help her in the areas that she clearly needed help. In her second year of grade three, Tina showed marked improvement and she would pass grade three and grade four. Unfortunately, though, in October 2011, a major trigger effect would occur in Tina's life as her father passed away, not from the cancer, but from a severe head injury after an altercation between Eugene and two other men over money while they were drinking. The two men would plead guilty to manslaughter three years later in 2014, and each would be sentenced to nine years in prison. Tina was 12 at the time of her father's death, and this would serve to be a major turning point in her life. Tina would speak extensively about how much she missed her father, and not long after her death, she would start using marijuana. Also during this time, Tina's mother would reach out to Tina for the first time in seven years, starting on the day of Eugene's funeral, and they would speak weekly for a couple of months until eventually the contact dropped off again, obviously causing more trauma in the life of young Tina. During the following two years, there would be talk between Tina's family and victim services regarding support, both financial and counseling, that could be made available for the family after the loss of Eugene. On May 31st, 2013, Tina's grand aunt would receive a letter from victim services stating that she would not be receiving financial services because she was seen as the legal guardian of Tina and her sibling since long before Eugene had passed away. What, however, was not mentioned was that other services would and could still be provided to the family. Later on, victim services would admit to not being as clear as they should have been and no counseling or aid was ever provided. In October of 2013, Tina started to pull away in all aspects of her life. Her attendance at school started to be an issue and she started to run away from home. In January of 2014, Tina was involved in a family argument at home, and she would inflict cuts on herself with a pen on her forearms. 911 was called as Tina had cut herself and barricaded herself in her room. Tina would be transported to a hospital, and when asked by a nurse, Tina would say that this was the first time she had cut herself and that she did not have suicidal thoughts. Tina was discharged from the hospital. In the second term of grade 8, Tina missed 47 and a half out of a possible 64 days of school, and in April of 2014, Tina would be suspended for going to school under the influence of marijuana, and it's believed that this is when Tina stopped attending school altogether. 
CFS recordings during the time, during this time in Tuna's life, would find that Tuna was suffering from mental health swings and self-harm. Tuna was striking out physically at family members. Tuna was often using marijuana with her peers. Tuna was not attending school. She was conversing with adult men online and looking to meet up with them. And she was running away when things didn't go her way. And finally, Tuna had never received any grief counseling after her father's death. When the two men pled guilty to manslaughter, the family was asked to write victim impact statements. And Tina found this to be incredibly difficult, telling her grand aunt, how do I write on a piece of paper how much this has hurt me? In May of 2014, Tina would be accused of assault with another youth against three other youth. No charges were laid. In July of 2014, Tina would go on a planned visit to see her mother. However, Tina's grandaunt would receive a Facebook message from Tina's boyfriend expressing concern for Tina and saying that Tina and her mother were using crack cocaine together and that Tina was being sexually exploited. Multiple efforts were taken at this time by Tina's grandaunt to get CFS and or the police to return Tina home. But much conversation seems to have led to different agencies involved not really doing much of anything because legally, Tina's mother was the sole primary caregiver on file for Tina. And even though Valentina had all of her other children removed by CFS, things appeared to be at a standstill. At the age of 15, Tina was picked up by Winnipeg police because they were alerted to Tina yelling for help as she was dragged down the street by an 18-year-old male. Tina would be taken to a short-term detox center for youth as she was found to be intoxicated. Tina's alcohol concentration was measured at 0.109% and she let staff know that she had drank 15 to 20 beers and chugged a liter before the police had showed up and apprehended her and that she had taken a lot of pills the day before. Tina would be released later that day. On July 30th, Tina's grandmother was in touch with CFS because one of her grandchildren had, been, had seen nude photos of Tina on social media. CFS advised her to call the Winnipeg Police and the Missing Persons Unit as Tina had again run away. The next few weeks were a lot, different agencies trying to work together in what seemed to be a half-decent attempt at trying to locate Tina. We will focus in on the week of August 8th, to 16th, 2014, which was a whirlwind for the multiple different institutions that were aware of and involved in Tina's case. Here is a quick breakdown. August 8th. This was the last day that Tina was seen by any of her service providers. In the early hours, Tina was at a youth shelter with a friend. They arrived at 2 a.m. and Tina used an alias, Tessa Guimond, and said that she lived with her mother, had no interactions with CFS, and hadn't been home in a week. Tina's friend, however, told the staff of Tina's real identity, but Tina continued to deny it. She had a swollen lip and scratches on her knee that she explained to staff were from a skateboarding accident. The youth shelter called CFS to inquire about Tina, but CFS notified the shelter that they had no bulletins or notices regarding Tina, who was filed as a missing person with the Winnipeg police. Tina and her friend would leave the shelter at 3.30 a.m. Two hours later, police pulled over a vehicle that Tina was an occupant of. However, she used an alias of Tessa Twohart until she later told police who she really was. The vehicle was impounded 
and the police let Tina go, even though she was listed with them as a missing person. A few hours later, at 10 a.m., two individuals found Tessa unconscious in a back alley near the University of Winnipeg, an area that was well known for sexual exploitation. Security was called, they were unable to wake Tina, paramedics were called, and they were able to wake her up. While at the hospital, Tina admitted to using alcohol, marijuana, and other drugs, and her lips were bruised, burnt, and swollen, but she denied that she was assaulted in any way and was discharged from the hospital. CFS placed her in a hotel, and her missing persons case with the Winnipeg Police Services was closed as she had been located. Tina left the hotel to meet up with friends and was told to be back by 11 p.m. Tina, on August 9th, Tina did not return to the hotel and Winnipeg police put out a citywide bolo, be on lookout for Tina. All officers were to be looking for Tina. On August 11th, text messages were received by an unnamed informant um, reporting that they had seen Tina around 4 a.m. on August 9th. The police had a phone number that was texting them, but they did not ever look into the owner of the phone number. WPS reached out to check with family to see if they had seen Tina. Everyone said they had not. WPS also reached out to StreetReach to, to let them know of Tina, her situation, and that she would be an ideal candidate for their limited high-risk victim list. This list prioritizes youth at imminent risk of harm for the targeted deployment of CFS and police resources and to conduct intensive searches, including address searches, for the youth when they are missing and connect them to those resources. StreetReach reached out to CFS to ask for a formal referral to their program, and believe it or not, it took CFS four days to complete that referral. August 12th to August 13th, Tina's CFS worker reached out to members of Tina's family to check in and see if they had located or heard from Tina. Everyone said they had not. WPS released another wide bolo to all officers to look out for Tina, and on the 13th, a media release went out. One of the members of Tina's family that had not seen her in some time noted that the photo of Tina was striking for many reasons especially that her hair was cut short. As a young girl, Tina loved having long hair and took immaculate care of her hair. The family member believed that this was a telltale sign that showed just how drastically Tina and her personality had changed since her father had been murdered. On August 14th, Winnipeg Police Services received an anonymous call that told them that they had seen Tina entering the house and that she was working as a prostitute. StreetReach also reached out to police to let them know that Tina had informally been, been added to their database, and they noted, Looking into this case, and it looks like it is a jurisdictional nightmare with a bunch of different agencies playing hot potato. It's your case, not ours. Bottom line is that there have been numerous concerns documented in our CFS system that this child is being exploited. We will be actively looking for her as she is a very high-risk child from what I can see from my quick look this afternoon. Outreach will start to looking for her tomorrow, so if there is any information you have that I haven't got, can you please let us know and we will get on it. This email communication was from August 14th to Winnipeg Police Services. 
August 15th and 16th saw the WPS and Street Reach checking out many different addresses that were supplied to them by Tina's family. On August 17th, 2014, following a tip from a passerby, unfortunately police recovered Tina's body from the Red River near the Alexander Docks. She had been wrapped in a blanket with multiple rocks added for weight. An autopsy was conducted by the Chief Medical Examiner's Office on August 18th, and the pathologist determined that there was no evidence of physical trauma, but there was moderate decomposition. The pathologist who conducted the autopsy was unable, due to the state of the body, to determine a cause of death for Tina, but noted that the way the body was found was highly suspicious. The way that Tina died, however, was, and still is, listed as undetermined. In the aftermath of Tina's death, there was a lot of scrutiny to go around. The Winnipeg Police, CFS, and so many levels of so many agencies would make changes because of this case and the way that Tina was dealt with. It is sad, but always the case that it takes a case like this and public knowledge and outrage before anything is done to try and help. In my opinion, especially when it comes to certain segments of society, there is very little doubt in my mind that if Tina had been a, white, a young Caucasian girl, things would have gone differently than they did. I believe wholeheartedly that Tina's case was heavily weighed upon by racism, ignorance, and she was a victim, at least partially, of a system dating back to the residential school system and beyond. In December of 2015, a man named Raymond Cormier was arrested and charged in Tina's death with second-degree murder. Raymond was originally from New Brunswick but had lived in Winnipeg for many years and was known to Tina under the alias of Sebastian. Mr. Cormier would go on trial in January of 2018, but unfortunately most of the evidence against him was circumstantial and given by witness testimony. Witnesses said that Tina and her boyfriend had met Mr. Cormier in the summer of 2014, and it was said that the blanket that Tina was found wrapped in was Raymond's blanket, but sadly there was no way to conclusively prove that. The trial was also negatively affected because Tina's body was in bad shape and not able to really be analyzed forensically. This was due to decomposition that had already taken place and the effects that water had on her body. There was an attempt to match DNA from fibers found on Tina's body with DNA that was found on cigarette butts belonging to Raymond Cormier, but unfortunately, no link was made. Near the end of February 2018, Raymond Cormier was acquitted of second-degree murder in the case of Tina Fontaine. As such, this case remains unsolved. Whether Raymond Cormier or someone else was guilty of this crime, it has yet to come to light. Tina Fontaine was a young woman who was not given much of the assistance that should have been made available to her. She was a victim of the system, much like her parents and grandparents before her, that looked down on indigenous peoples as something lesser than. If you look up photos of Tina from a young age up until the end of her young life, you can see changes that made her look tougher, harder, and better prepared for the world that she sadly found herself in. Tina Fontaine was a young woman who was still discovering who she was and where she fit into this world. But the separation of her family, the division from her mother, the death of her father, and so much more led her down a path that she needed help deviating from. 
In my opinion, the police, the CFS, counseling, and so much more dropped the ball on this girl. And no doubt, there are men and women everywhere who know that they share some of the blame for this tragic loss of life. If one good thing came out of this, and that sounds terrible to say, it is that Canada started to look into and fund programs to aid and solve cases involving missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada. If you do know anything about this case, about Tina Fontaine, and have information that could lead to the arrest of a person that's not Mr. Cormier, or people who are responsible, please do not hesitate to do so. This is a young girl who was prevented the opportunity of growing up, of falling in love, of having a family, and of becoming who she could have been. You can reach out regarding this case by calling Crime Stoppers at 204-786-TIPS-8477. If you have any information that you believe could tie into this case, please do not be afraid to come forward. Help us to help the extended family of Tina Fontaine to get some closure. Help us to shine some light on another case where this young woman is gone, but never forgotten. So, Julia, I have to ask, like, what'd you think of this case? Uh, I really enjoyed this one um, because I just think, you know, there's that saying that says history repeats itself. So it's very important that we never forget what happened in the past so that we don't make the same mistakes again. There's so much that's like tied up in here. I mean, I did do this episode as an unsolved murder, but I mean, you look at the case, you look at, I didn't cover very much about Mr. Cormier because I do want to focus more on a victim than um, a suspect or, you know, someone who's guilty of something. Absolutely. And... You know, like, there is a lot of evidence here that points to Sebastian or Mr. Cormier, but it, a lot of it was circumstantial. The unfortunate thing is, even if someone comes forward now, we've got the double jeopardy law, which essentially means that um, even if DNA evidence came out that basically said that Mr. Cormier did this crime, um, I don't think that the case could get reopened again. Um, it's really unfortunate. The prosecution, when they lost this case, decided not to appeal, um, which essentially, unless someone else is pointed at as um, a suspect here, means that this case will be kind of left dead in the water. Yes, um, I know. It's it's not a good situation at all. Um, but I do want to just remind everyone, like regardless of what happens with this, let's never forget this young life and all the other young lives that we have yet to explore and share. Yeah, something that I want to kind of tack on here that's really cool is like, you know, I'm 37 and you're 31. And I mean, for me, I didn't learn about anything to do with the residential school systems or I didn't even really know about that program growing up. And uh, we have a nine-year-old son who came home and taught us about, it's red shirt day, I think, right? I don't remember, oh. but he, he's nine and he knows so much about the residential school system. And I'm so proud of the school board for teaching young children this because, you know, they are the future and we're hoping that they will not make these mistakes and they will tell their children and their children's children and we can make this, um, you know, something that, that is going to be in the past. We'll never repeat this again. Yep, it's definitely, you know, we live in a world where, you know, we talk about racism a lot and 
I lived in Manitoba for, I think, five years, and I got to see kind of, it's still, there's very much that, um, when I lived out there anyhow, there was that kind of class system of, you know, your Caucasian people and then your indigenous people on the streets. And it's sad and it's heartbreaking. And in university, because I didn't know too much about this stuff, I actually wrote a paper on um, the plight of indigenous people. And believe it or not, even then when I was in university, um, I'd have to go back and reread my essay, but I'm pretty sure like there was nothing really out there about um, indigenous school programs, which yeah, is, yeah. it's heartbreaking. It is. You know, you, you follow, that's part of the reason I wanted to talk about uh, Tina's family. You know, you see how stuff like this passes on from generation to generation. The grandparents um, are involved in the residential school system and they get involved in alcohol and they become abusive. That passes down in this situation to Valentina and to Eugene. Uh, Valentina finds herself uh, in the in the CFS system not being looked after properly, not having her situation taken care of, um, even with Eugene, who was way older than she was. And then it passes on down another generation, and we see Tina, who loses her dad. She doesn't really have much contact with her mom, and when she does, it's a terrible influence on her life. And she's living on the streets, she's trying to get by, she's doing drugs, she's drinking, and it's just another sad end to, like, you know, it just keeps going and going. And, like, that's what really tears at my heartstrings when I'm doing research into stuff like this. Yeah, it's definitely um, it's definitely heartbreaking. And this one was a little bit hard to, you know, look into and, and think about and, you know, put together. Um, so, you know, sometimes there's just those ones that get you. And especially when, when someone is that young to go through that is just so sad. All right. Is there anything else you have to add, really? Nope, just, you know, history repeats itself, so let's change the future. Okay. I do want to mention, um, if you do want to do more research, there is a massive document that's available online that I used for a lot of my research. Um, I used, it's called A Place Where It Feels Like Home, The Story of Tina Fontaine by Daphne Penrose. It was a special report in accordance of the Advocate for Children and Youth Act. Um, also, obviously, the usual suspects. You can find a lot of information on CBC News, Global News, BBC News. There's so much out there. Um, I guess to finish off the episode, maybe on a little bit lighter of a note, I do want to mention to everyone that we have started up our Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com forward slash GBNF podcast, uh, you can find what will essentially be a homepage um, foregone but never forgotten. Um, and if you feel so inclined to help us out with uh, a little bit of a little bit of cash on the side per month to help us to buy some better equipment and uh, I don't know, just thank us for the work that we're doing. That would be awesome. If not, we appreciate your listenership. Either way, um, you can also, as always, check us out on Facebook uh, or send us an email at gbnfpodcast at gmail.com. I did get reached out to this week by a listener who gave me a case to look into um, for episode number three, which I thought was really cool. We're just getting started, and um, we have some really cool um, conversation going back and forth with people out there. So I'm super excited to dive into that case for our next episode. Um, with, without anything else to say, I'll say thank you for listening. Have an amazing week, and we'll see you soon for Episode 3. See you next time.